Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 5, and we're going to look together at the verses that Kathy read for us this morning, and it would be really helpful for uh, our time together if you just left it open uh, on your lap, either in the the Bible, uh, in terms of a, a book or uh, an app, either one of those would be, uh, would be great this morning. So this is the last talk in a series on Paul's letter to the American church, a.k.a. the church in Thessalonica. And I have, uh, I've loved this series, and it seemed like just yesterday we talked about starting the series, and here we are already on this side of it. So... This time around, we're going to be looking at the last few verses in the chapter. Now, on more than one occasion, I have shared with you about my experience being at a chaplain's course at the United States Coast Guard Academy, and we had a lecture by someone who came over from the Naval War College, which is in Newport, Rhode Island, not not too far away from New London, Connecticut, where the Coast Guard Academy is. And I've told you before that I can't remember a thing about this guy's lecture except his opening line. And his opening line was, we are all cracked pots. We are all cracked pots. And I I pondered that again this week as I looked at our text because... The church today and in our individual lives, we find ourselves living in the tension between the call that we have today in our passage today, but in past Sundays as well, to a life of holiness, to a life of sanctification, to a life of discipleship that causes us to look different than our neighbors, those around us. And yet the tension is that In the midst of doing that, we are imperfect, all of us, we're imperfect sinners, and we're trying to figure out how to do life together in the context of being an extended family. As I was preparing for this message, I came across a blog by Michael Van Sloan. Michael Van Sloan is actually a Catholic priest, and uh, he reminded me that uh, we're not alone in this tension. This is what he said. He said, despite their strong start, the apostles were ill-prepared to venture off on their own. They were unable to heal a boy with a demon, presumably because their prayer was weak in Mark 9. The apostles displayed a lack of comprehension of what Jesus was saying in Mark 4. They had little faith, again in Mark 4. They had hard hearts, again in Mark chapter 6. Competitiveness, Mark 9. Possessiveness, Mark 9. Selfish ambition, Mark 10. And jealousy, Mark 10. And then worst of all, when Jesus was arrested, they left him and fled, Mark 14. And disappointingly, they were nowhere to be found during his trial, torture, crucifixion, and burial. The apostles were in no way ready to be worthy of evangelizers. And I don't know if you feel that way sometimes, but, but I do. Not, not worthy of being an evangelizer, not being worthy of the one to carry 
the good news because of this tension in my life and the tension we all feel of wanting to be like Jesus, engaging in some of the disciplines of holiness, and yet finding ourselves, doggone it, still dealing with some sin issues in our lives. This is what Van Slout goes on to say that is an encouraging word to us. He says, amazingly, Jesus asks sinners to serve him. After the resurrection, Jesus appeared to the eleven and commissioned them to be evangelizers. Go into the world and proclaim the gospel to every living creature, again in Mark. Jesus calls the unworthy and makes them worthy. He sends forth the weak and makes them strong. And the apostles obeyed, and they went forth and preached everywhere. We see this tension between this call to holiness and the challenge with sin in these last few verses that Kathy read for us this morning, this letter to the American church from Paul, a.k.a. his first letter to the Thessalonians. Now, I'm not going to reread what Kathy read for us, but we're going to look at verse 12 to the end of the passage, and so that's why I encourage you to have your Bibles open so that you can follow along, because I don't intend to read all of the verses again. So... When we go through uh, in a sermon, often there will be a story or the fancy word is a pericope, uh, New Testament scholars tell us, and, and it's a specific piece of Scripture. And often there's a theme that runs through it. So when I preach, I may preach on the theme of grace or love or those kinds of things that, that, are, that are a theme. Unfortunately, today, this passage is a shotgun approach because there's just all of these unrelated things that Paul says we're supposed to do. And so I encourage you to fasten your seatbelt because we have some ground to cover and we're going to cover it very, uh, very, very quickly uh, together. So let's look first of all at verses 12 to 13 where we see we are to have respect for leaders. So Paul is talking here about church leadership, pastors and elders, and he says they should be esteemed very highly in love. The Greek here is interesting. It says to esteem them without measure because of their work. And the thing that's most important here, I think, is to understand that that phrase that says we're to esteem them because of their work. I, I have 25 years in the Navy and in the military, we have an expression, if you can't salute the person because you happen to know that individual and some kind of a terrible mistake was made in their promotion, they shouldn't be where they are. Uh, but within the military, you still have to support the rank. You still have to salute the rank. And so you salute the uniform, if not the person. That's not the way it is in the church. It's absolutely the opposite way in the church. Right here it says that our elders... Uh, And pastors are to be esteemed not because of their role, not because of the position that they have, but because of the kind of work that they do on behalf of us as a church. Those who have served a term as elder, I still see as elders at North Sound Church. And uh, Tom uh, was in the first service this morning, and I haven't looked over to see all of the the past elders that that are in this service, but... The reason that elders were chosen to begin with is because they were already doing the work of an elder, 
and we saw that they were doing the work of an elder, and so we said, you know what? This person should help us in a leadership role for that reason. And when their term ended as an elder, my expectation of them is that they would continue in that role. They would continue to act like an elder on behalf of their relationship with the congregation. I'm going to embarrass our current elders, but I don't know that I have ever in a meeting like this talked about each one of them and the place that they have and the background they have at North Sound Church. So um, elders, please excuse me for embarrassing you for a few moments this morning. But Kathy Burnside served two terms. Kathy read scripture for us this morning. And and was kind of, uh, had done, you know, her part as an elder. She continued to serve in a leadership capacity, caring for people, um, but had kind of finished two terms or six years in that role. But last uh, fall, um, John uh, Taylor had decided that he wanted to make his transition a little bit early, and I had explained to you all why um, he had decided to do that. Um, and Kathy contacted me and said, you know what, I even though I wasn't going to come back as an elder, I think God is calling me to come back for this season. And I was blown away by that and immediately said, well, that's wonderful. We'll, you know, I'll talk to the elders and I, I think we can do that and you'll fulfill John's one year. And uh, it, it has proven to be a divine appointment in terms of the things that we're dealing with relative to the past of our church, the present of our church, and the future of our church, I absolutely believe that God tapped Kathy on the shoulder and said, come and help us. What you may not know about Kathy is that she was a widow as a young mom and struggled through a difficult journey with her husband's illness uh, and raising the kids and then met um, Greg, who I think, Greg, this is the first time on the front row for, for you. Um, you know, God... Yeah, you. Yeah, right. Are you going to get saved this morning, brother? Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, they have had a wonderful marriage for I think decades now. I guess twenty-six years. Yeah, and so um, so Kathy has come back on. Kathy was a nurse, and it, she was involved in training in her professional life. She understands grief, as I mentioned to you from her own experience. I know many of you have experienced the loss of a spouse. She uh, coordinated our women's ministry here at North Sound Church and uh, also uh, put together our trip to Israel a couple of years ago. But if you want to talk to someone who understands, who has lived life in many of the aspects of life that you are familiar with, talk to Kathy. Dennis Gulke is our newest elder, and um, Dennis uh, occasionally reads scripture. I'm not going to embarrass you further by making you stand or wave, but I want you to be aware of these folks. Dennis's appointment also proved to be providential. Dennis's background was in business. He was uh, the CEO of Icicle Seafoods and has been a part with, uh, with his lovely wife, Tracy, a part of North Sound Church for probably 10 years or so, but more recently um, has had a little more time to engage and to be involved. And Dennis served as the president of the board for Christian Ministries, took a year off, and then they invited him back on to serve again. And as I began to sit down and spend time with Dennis, I understood why. 
Um, Dennis has an amazing gift of facilitation and, and leadership and administration and vision. And um, for 20 years, I think I've, I've mostly facilitated our, our meetings, uh, strategic planning meetings and things like that. But in this season in which we're looking at the future of the church in the next 10 or 20 years, um, I, I recognize the gift in Dennis is greater than my own and said, Dennis, why don't you help facilitate and lead? And so another godsend, um, Dennis and Tracy are amazing people. The only, there, there's one thing wrong, and that is uh, in my mind that they didn't choose Arsenal instead of uh, Liverpool as their Premier League soccer team. But what can I, what can I do? Dan Radley, along with Kerry, have been a part of North Sound almost from the beginning. Dan has been an elder for a year and a half. A couple Sundays ago, or maybe it was last Sunday, Dan was on the front row with, uh, and Dan and Kerry with their grandchildren. And uh, I was just so amazed because the, the, the elders not only show their leadership and their spiritual leadership publicly, but it's what they do behind the scenes. And I had said last week that Dan and Carrie adopted a young man at the age of 20 who wanted to be adopted at that point in his life. And now they've more or less not formally adopted, but are helping to raise their, their grandchildren. And their grandson, um, Caden, spoke, uh, read the scripture for us um, last, uh, last Sunday. Yesterday, Dan was out in the parking lot here working to get the trailers that we have, storage trailers, taken to his place um, so that we can get the parking lot repaved and restriped. Dan has, uh, has taken on a lot, and uh, most of it is humble service that you would never know about. John Campbell is an amazing individual. He's been so faithful in humble service over the last few years. Um, John um, is the individual you see on the way in on Sunday morning, um, the smiling face that welcomes you. And um, I have so appreciated John and Leanne, their faithfulness over the last few years, Leanne stepping into a role in women's ministry, uh, and, uh, and then John serving faithfully through COVID when life has been miserable around here. When, if you remember, in COVID we didn't meet and then we met separated by groups and in masks. It was just it was a miserable time. But every Sunday I could count on John being here, and that's been the case now in the post-COVID time as well. What you don't know about John is that he has a PhD degree in cognitive psychology uh, and is a sought-after leader in the nation relative to the safety of automobiles. And uh, he brings that kind of knowledge and expertise around our board table. And uh, it's been fun because uh, of getting to know John and Leanne, and they are a part of a small group that began... I think, I think decades ago, John, uh, in, their, in their former church, and these people have stayed together as a small group, uh, and annually, in addition to um, their Bible study and prayer together, um, they have an annual trip to the Ellensburg Rodeo, which is coming up sometime, sometime soon. Jack Hoover serves our church as treasurer and as the master of the spreadsheets. Uh, we get financial reports graphically and in color uh, at North Sound Church. And what you don't know about Jack is that he leads a men's Bible study every week, that he uh, has a master's degree in apologetics, that he's worked for many years mentoring young men at the University of Washington, 
And at the same time, he built a prosperous business here now in downtown Seattle. Jack and Sherry have the gift of hospitality that many of you have experienced. I know their small group that they're regularly a part of in the evening of well have experienced that. And uh, we, we are just so blessed to have them and to have each one of the elders serving us. And I encourage you to tell them that, to encourage them, because the job is not always easy. Sometimes we have to deal with tough stuff, and I want them to know that they're appreciated. And the text says so clearly that they are to be esteemed, not because of their role, but because of the work they do, and I can assure you they work hard for each one of us. The second thing we see in our passage is that we're to be at peace among ourselves. Verse 13. By God's grace, for most of the 20 years that North Sound Church has been in existence, we have fulfilled this command of being at peace with each other. I have never taken peace at church for granted. Never. And the reason is that I'm a PK. I'm a preacher's kid. And I have seen things that happened in my dad's church that did not create peace. And having experience in ministry in other churches, I have seen dynamics that were not peaceful where this verse was not put into effect. I spoke with a pastor recently and said, you know, I, I handle the responsibilities of ministry. Okay, I love being a pastor. I love what I do. But I don't have any bandwidth for conflict. And if it wasn't the case at North Sound Church that we've had 20 peaceful years, I, I don't think I would have lasted very long at all. When conflict besets a church for whatever reason, the, the vision for outreach, the vision for growth, the vision for making a difference in our community changes radically. <clears throat> and what happens is our energy and our time turn inward. And so we begin to spend all of our time trying to troubleshoot what the issue is and how we can resolve the conflict. And so this passage is so important in terms of being at peace among yourselves because that's what God has called us to. But when we disagree with each other, whether it's in our marriages, our families, our workplace, even our politics, we, we can have different points of view without intentionally hurting those who have a different perspective. We have to work on that. We have no reason to insult others because they see things differently. The third thing we see here in verse 14 is that we're to admonish the idol. This speaks of those who literally live disordered lives. It says idol, but it means disordered lives. The Moffat translation, which is kind of a modern paraphrase, uses the term loafers, L-O-A-F-E-R-F-S. And the, 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 the point of the challenge of, of loafers in the church or people who live disordered lives is that they, they would take the energy of the church to care for them, to look after them, and, uh, and, 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 and they would also affect the reputation of the church because the people outside the church would see these people, they would know they were a part of this Christian community, and would evaluate the Christian community based upon their experience. I was leading a Navy chaplain's uh, seminar <clears throat> when uh, a young chaplain confessed to me that he was having an affair. And being that it was in the 
in the context of a confessional, I, I, I didn't and couldn't do anything about that uh, other than to tell him he needed to stop. He was having an affair with a senior enlisted Marine's wife, and this was not, this was not going to end well for anyone. So we had this conversation, and, uh, and, you know, and I shared with him what he needed to do. But what, of course, I realized was that if this were to go public, that published in the, the Navy Times or the Seattle Times or the New York Times that a Navy chaplain was having an affair with a Marine senior, a senior enlisted Marine's wife, um, it makes all chaplains, all that wear the uniform, look bad. We are major supporters of our police department. In fact, in your name, uh, the elders recently, within the last few weeks, gave $5,000 to the Edmonds Police Foundation to give to our substation, our police substation up on Highway 99, to be able to use for vouchers for people who have nowhere to stay uh, at night and to help them get at least one night off the street. We're engaged with our police department. We support them. But when a police officer uses excessive force, it, it affects everybody in uniform. And so this picture we have here is that we need to admonish the idol. We need to come alongside and help them in the midst of their behavior. The fourth thing is to encourage the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted are literally translated those with a small soul. I've mentioned over the years the challenges the cranes have had with anxiety. In my generation, in my dad's generation, and in my grandfather's generation, and having recently returned from Ireland, I know that some of my extended Irish family have had some challenges with anxiety as well. But here we have something different. What is being described here as faint-hearted refers to those who are constantly fearful. One commentator says, they instinctively fear the worst. Maybe you're like that, or maybe you know somebody who is, but, but, but they instinctively fear the worst. And that can take a toll on the community that wants to be courageous, right? Fear is contagious. Have you ever noticed that? And when you're around folks who constantly fear the worst, it's easy to begin fearing yourself. When I was 14, I joined the Canadian Airborne Regiment Cadet Corps. And we weren't old enough to jump out of airplanes, but we were old enough to go through all of the parachute training and all of the devices. And if devices sounds like torture, uh, it, it, it's well-meaning. So we would go through all of the devices, but because we couldn't jump out of airplanes, the farthest we could go was the mock tower. And, and it was really scary. And I can remember, um, I think Judy has a picture of the mock tower. I can, I can remember climbing up the stairs in fear, you know, going up those stairs in fear because I knew that I was going to have to jump out of a perfectly good building and fall, and hopefully the risers were going to hold me and then would slide down a line kind of, like a, kind of like a zip line. So it was taking all the courage that I could have to get up to the top, and then the young man right in front of me decided he couldn't go. He got too afraid. He got too fearful. 
And so he, they tried to encourage the active duty airborne troops, tried to encourage him to get him to go, and he, he wouldn't go. So they had to unhook him and get him out of the way. And guess who was next? <laughs> fear, fear like that is contagious. It's uh, important, I think, for us to understand that the faint-hearted is the one on the airplane who, when there's a little turbulence, is the one that yells, we're all going to die, right? And how does, that, how does that make you feel? So the, the, the point, however, is that in the Christian community, it's different. How do we respond to people who instinctively fear the worst in the Christian community? Well, right here, we see that we are to slow down and encourage them. We come alongside them. They have a place in the kingdom. They have a place in our community, and we have to slow down and walk with them. Number five is to help the weak, also in verse 14. Help is a less vivid translation in the Greek, which actually means to hold close, to cling to. And, and I love this picture. This is one of those places where the Greek is helpful because it isn't just help people, but it's cling to people who are weak. The larger context here is a brother or sister who is weak in faith and is likely to just drift away from the church and the faith. Um, our Ethan uh, is seven and Thomas now is five, and they're not as much afraid of things on TV as they used to be. But we used to play what was their favorite movie was Snow White. I don't know how long it's been for some of you to look at Snow White, but it has some really scary parts in it. There's that evil witch. And uh, so when they were little, we would watch Snow White because it was a Disney movie, right? We would watch Snow White, but there was that place where the evil witch did some evil things, and they would come and cling to us. And I must confess, we kind of liked that part, the clinging to us part. But that's the picture, that's the picture that we have here of what we need to do with the weak. We need to cling to them. In, in pastoral care and in caring for the body of Christ, I have to tell you it's gotten a little bit harder from when I started in ministry. So one of the reasons why we do small groups at North Sound Church and we encourage your involvement is because certainly post-COVID, but, but in many ways before COVID as well, our, att our church attendance patterns have changed. It used to be folks attended church fairly regularly, you know, three or four times a month. Nowadays, it tends to be, for some folks at least, different. And it's hard for us as pastors to evaluate whether the reason is a weakness in faith, whether there's a pulling back from a closeness to Christ, or whether it's simply a busy life or watching online or you know, just other stuff going on. Um, and so we can miss the signals that someone is actually drifting away. But when you're in a small group, those signals are picked up, and people can cling to you. They can come close to you because they see the dynamic that's at work in your life in that way. I mentioned pastoral care, and this is maybe a statement in parentheses, but pastoral care has become difficult for us as well. 
It used to be, when I, again, a young man in ministry, was that if someone went to the hospital, the pastor went. If, some, uh, if a family member passed away, the pastor would show up. We were there as pastors in those kind of times. What we've discovered now, uh, through no fault of anyone, but what we've discovered is that people don't always want the pastor there. And so we now have to, as pastors, kind of negotiate whether... Whether, we should, whether they want us there or whether they don't want us there in a, in a family situation or a crisis. Pastor Mark spoke last week. Amazing guy. Such a, such a kind uh, pastor and caregiver. He, his last role at North Sound was in pastoral care. Wonderful guy. But I got a phone call about Pastor Mark one time, and, and the person on the other end of the phone said, uh, Pastor Barry, you know, my mom's in the hospital um, or my wife's in the hospital. Could you please ask Pastor Mark not to visit? But, yeah. He said, every time he shows up, my mom thinks she's dying. <laughs> so it has, it has become a little complicated. Be patient with them all, verse 14. Macrothumia, or patience, um, this is one of those times where I absolutely love the King James Version. And we had two folks in the first service that remembered the word that's used in the King James Version. Somebody that wasn't in the first service. Do you remember what the King James Version word is for patience? Long suffering. Who said that? You did, Paul? You know, for a Swede, you're pretty smart. <laughs> That was, that's exactly it. Now, isn't long-suffering so much better than patient? I mean, long, I mean, think about it, right? The line at QFC, long-suffering if you get in the wrong line. So I just, I just love that word, but it says be patient with them all. Paul reminds us that love is patient in 1 Corinthians 13, 4. God himself has described as being patient and full of mercy in Exodus 34. Some of you remember Pastor Jan Hedinga. He was a pastor of North Shore when our church was uh, planted. Uh, and uh, Jan had a diagram. Some of you may remember this diagram, but um, it, it kind of tells us about the work we do. So patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. It's, it's a fruit of the Spirit. And what Jan's diagram illustrates is that as human beings who are at the same time saint and sinners, we're working on different areas of our lives with the Holy Spirit. So we may look at our lives and say, well, I'm pretty good with patience, um, but I'm not so good with self-control, or I'm not so good with, with joy. Or, and and we, we want to give ourselves to the Holy Spirit to begin to be strengthened in those other areas. There are none of us that are batting uh, a thousand on all, of, uh, on all of these fruit of the Spirit. Here, we're told to deal with patience, to be patient with them all. I know a number of you have been in London, and if you've been in London, you've probably been in the underground, the, um, the subway, uh, the tube, as they call it there. And, uh, and, and people are, are pretty much always in a hurry. They're, they're just... They're just in a hurry to get somewhere. And 
Um, Barbara and I were heading out, and the other thing that you notice about the tube is that many of them were built years ago, and they're just not ADA compliant. There's these massive stairs, and you're carrying your suitcases up. It's miserable. So this lady was at the top of this long flight of stairs that were going down to the tube and people coming up, and she had these monstrous suitcases that were absolutely impossible for her to carry. There was no way she was going to be able to manage them. And I came upon the scene just as a guy who probably was in as big a hurry as anybody else stopped, patiently turned to her, and said, do you need help? And she lit up that this individual would stop. And she said, no, actually, my husband is helping. And when we went around the corner, her husband was, was bringing up some more massive suitcases up the, up the stairs. Uh, but the, 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 the visible reaction of this individual pausing to help her was just amazing. And um, a reminder of living out that virtue and the effect that it has on others and what we're called to do here. Number seven, I'm going to be a little bit over time today, and the brunch is really good, so just fasten your seatbelts. We'll be done soon. So number seven, don't return evil for evil, but seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Jesus lays this out clearly in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Friends, retaliation is not an option for followers of Jesus. Clearly, we're supposed to do good to those who even hate us, not just dislike us, but hate us. We see this in Abraham Lincoln, who after winning the election for president, Instead of dismissing his opponent, built a team of rivals. There's a book, a great book called The Team of Rivals, and I understand a movie as well. I didn't realize there was a movie. No one treated Lincoln with more contempt than did Edwin Stanton. He called him a low cunning clown. He nicknamed him the original gorilla and said that Duchelieu was a fool to wander about Africa trying to capture a gorilla when he could have found one so easily in Springfield, Illinois. Lincoln said nothing. He made Stanton his war minister because he was the best man for the job, and he treated him with every courtesy. The years wore on. The night came when the assassin's bullet murdered Lincoln in the theater. In the little room to which the president's body was taken stood that same Stanton, and looking down on Lincoln's silent face, he said through his tears, there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever known. Paul makes the distinction here that we are to do good to one another. That is within the Christian community. The scripture says we're to be known by the love we have for each other. But he doesn't stop there. He says we're to be good to everyone. I know I keep saying this over and over and over again, but our best evangelism in the current secular age is when we seek to do good to everyone, including our cantankerous neighbor across the back fence including the workmate whose whistling drives us nuts or the guy who changes lanes in front of us without signaling. You get the idea. Finally, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. I like the way Scottish commentator William Barclay describes these as the nature of a healthy church. I hope these describe North Sound Church. Let's look together. It's a happy church. 
There is in that atmosphere of joy which makes its members feel they are bathed in sunshine. True Christianity is an exhilarating and not a depressing thing. I hope you leave here on Sundays with exhilaration and not depression. It's a praying church. Maybe our church's prayers would be more effective if we remembered that they pray best together who also pray alone. It's also a thankful church. There is always something for which to give thanks. Even on the darkest day, there are blessings to count. We must remember that if we face the sun, the shadows will fall behind us. But if we turn our backs on the sun, all the shadows will be in front. Friends, we've seen that God's will is for our sanctification, our holiness, discipleship. These are characters of this kind of life and this kind of church. And then do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test everything, hold on to the good, resist evil. The spirit in Scripture is referred to as a fire. The work of the spirit is seen as moving forward like a fire, like the tongues of fire at Pentecost. And so that which works against the Spirit is seen as something that puts out the fire of the Spirit. Well, this could be anything that works to put out the fire of the Spirit. In this context, it could also be prophecy. We, we don't have time now. We're running out of time to expand on this. But it, to say that some believe prophecy is inspired preaching, anointed preaching. Some believe that prophecy is a word from the Lord for a particular season or moment. And, and we kind of believe it's both. But we kind of have emphasized that prophecy may be best used if there's more of an individual word or a word for the body in a context of a small group so that um, within that context there can be greater understanding and an ability to interact with that. Finally, the last few verses, um, I'm not going to read them again as Kathy read them for us, but <clears throat> earlier we saw that God's will for us is our sanctification. And here in these last few verses, it's repeated. Our sanctification is partly our work of wanting to be different, wanting to be like Jesus, and partly the work of the Spirit, God's work, working um, faithfully on his part. I want to I close now with just noting these words, brothers, pray for us. Brothers, pray for us. We all need prayer, and, and isn't it wonderful how prayer works across the miles and prayer works next door? Um, we, we know that in this place Paul was writing to the church in Thessalonica across the miles and asking them to pray for him. And, and the prayer was mutual. We can pray for people around the world. We don't need to be right with them, and yet we can also pray for those near us. I close with a story John Ortberg tells about Tony Campalo. He says, a prayer meeting was held for him just before he spoke to a Pentecostal chapel service. It was a Pentecostal college. Eight men took Tony to a back room of the chapel and had him kneel, laid their hands on his head, and began to pray. Now think about that for a moment. It could be a little frightening. That's a good thing, although Tony wrote, except they prayed a long time, and the longer they prayed, the more tired they got, and the more tired they got, the more they leaned on his head. He said, I want to tell you that when eight guys are leaning on your head, it doesn't feel so good. 
To make matters worse, one of the men was not even praying for Tony. He went on and on praying for somebody named Charlie Stoltfus. Dear Lord, you know Charlie Stoltfus. He lives in that silver trailer down the road a mile. You know that trailer, Lord, just down the road on the right-hand side. Tony said he wanted to inform the prayer that it wasn't necessary to furnish God with directional material. <laughs> Lord, Charlie told me this morning he's going to leave his wife and three kids. Step in and do something, God. Bring that family back together. Tony writes that he finally got the Pentecostal preachers off his head delivered his message and got in his car to drive home and as he drove onto the Pennsylvania Turnpike he noticed a hitchhiker and John Ortberg says I'll let him tell it from here he said we drove a few minutes and I said hi my name's Tony Campala what's yours he said my name is Charlie Stoltfus <laughs> I couldn't believe it I got off the turnpike Tony says at the next exit and headed back he got a bit uneasy with that, the hitchhiker, and after a few minutes he said, Hey, mister, where are you taking me? I said, I'm taking you home. He narrowed his eyes and asked, Why? I said, Because you just left your wife and three kids, right? That blew him away. Yeah, that's right. With shock written all over his face, he plastered himself against the car door and never took his eyes off me. Then I really did him in as I drove right to his silver trailer. When I pulled up, his eyes seemed to bulge, and he asked, How did you know that I lived here? I said, God told me. <laughs> I believe God did tell me. When he opened the trailer door, his wife exclaimed, You're back, you're back. He whispered in her ear, and the more he talked, the bigger her eyes got. Then I said with real authority, The two of you sit down. I'm going to talk to you, and you two are going to listen. And man, did they listen and that afternoon, I led those young people to Jesus Christ. Friends, prayer, prayer is powerful. Remember to pray for the brothers and the sisters. And let us pray now. Lord, we thank you for this letter to the American church. We thank you, Lord, for First Thessalonians being a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway. And Lord, we've enjoyed the instruction. Help us now, Lord, to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.